Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Don't forget, everybody, first Tuesdays, Tuesday, October 3rd, 7 p.m., Haymarket House in Uptown, the future of Uptown, Maya, me, Angela Clay. Uh, we'll be talking politics, immigration. Oh, my God. You know what? We're going to be talking about should Chicago stay a sanctuary city? I'll be talking about that uh, a lot. Which should uh, Chicago welcome MAGA to town? Congressman Jordan brought a hearing to uh, Chicago uh, to discuss crime and Democrats and why Chicagoans should vote for MAGA. Should we take the Trump name off the Trump Tower? Okay. Donald Trump in all kinds of trouble uh, from his business uh, empire seems to be crumbling and falling. Maybe it'll lead to that Trump name coming off the tower. All these things are discussed and more. First Tuesday, Tuesday, October 3rd, 7 p.m., Haymarket House, 800 West Buena in Uptown. Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, September 28th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back in these times web editor, Miles Kompflassen. The Ben Jarofsky show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know where to go? You want to know what to do? What to eat? What to drink? You've got questions about Chicago. Chicago Reader has answers. Head to ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Close That Door Thursday. And here's why. Anthony Beale, Alderman Anthony Beale of the Ninth Ward, has proposed that the voters of Chicago address the issue in a referendum. Should Chicago stay a sanctuary city? He wants to get that on the ballot. I think it would be on the ballot for March of 2024, maybe uh, November of 2024. I don't know. I don't know if he can get it on the ballot. There's all kinds of hurdles uh, that he has to cross before he gets it to the ballot. But this is the latest move by MAGA in the city of Chicago. I've been seeing this. We've been seeing MAGA has made a concerted effort uh, to uh, have a foothold in the city of Chicago basically for over a year now. Uh, it goes back to the Paul Vallis campaign, the greatest success that MAGA has had in the city of Chicago. Let's also all acknowledge it. Paul Vallis. Now, Paul Vallis, a long, long time ago, was an aide to Mayor Daley. Uh, he was a revenue department director. He uh, served as the head of the Chicago Public Schools. But in the last 10 years, he's drifted to the right. Drifted. He's like steamed full steam ahead to the right. Uh, and he's become full-fledged MAGA. He spent the summer courting uh, the wackiest wackos uh, in the MAGA universe. We all know that. Then we pretended like it didn't happen, uh, and he dragged out uh, his Democratic uh, allies uh, to bolster and foster his campaign. Interesting. Interesting dynamic in the Democratic Party. 
uh, when we come to the city of Chicago. Just think about it, folks. I know it's kind of like it's it's something that happened a long time ago. It may be difficult to, to just to like it may be painful to think about. But Richard Durbin, your senator, Democrat, supported Paul Ballas. Uh, Jesse White, a Democrat, supported Paul Ballas. Tom Tunney. Oh, my God. He beyond supporting Paul Vallis. He loved Paul Vallis. Uh, Tom Tunney from the uh, 44th Ward endorsing Paul Vallis, the former alderman of the 44th Ward. Arnie Duncan, Obama's education secretary and the former CPS, head of the CPS, endorsed Paul Vallis. All these centrist Democrats, all these liberal Democrats joined the MAGA team to support for Paul Vallis. So that was a very crucial, in my humble opinion, move by MAGA into the city of Chicago, typically abetted by liberal Democrats and centrist Democrats who are always ready to sell out their brethren. <laughs> I don't know what they were looking for. Uh, and um, it failed. Obviously, Brandon Johnson won by 48% of the vote. Now we have Should Chicago Stay a Sanctuary City by Anthony Beale, Alderman Anthony Beale, another Paul Vallis supporter, Ninth Ward uh, Democrat. One of these Democrats that just loves to go to the Republican side of things. Uh, and he's obviously trying to exploit the, what, I don't know, what is it, angst, anxiety in the city of Chicago? Misguided, I say, uh, over the um, asylum seekers who've been pouring into the city, bust into the city from Texas. I, of course, I've been advocating for a long time that Chicago should view this as an opportunity. It should be thanking Governor Abbott. Uh, our population has fallen largely for because of policies, planning policies that were supported by, I don't know, Anthony Beale, Arnie Duncan, Tom Tunney, R Senator Durbin. Isn't that funny? They all supported the policies that essentially led to thousands and thousands of people either being priced out of Chicago or literally moved out of Chicago. And now they're like anxious and anxiety ridden because other people are coming into Chicago. I don't know if we can afford them. I don't know if we want them. Slam door, the door shut. So uh, Chicago is officially a sanctuary city. Uh, it was implemented in the 80s by executive order by the greatest mayor the city of Chicago ever had, Harold Washington. I'm sure if they are around at the time, <laughs> I'm sure if they are around at the time, Duncan would have been against Harold Washington. Uh, Tommy Tunney would have been against uh, Harold Washington. You know, Durbin would have been hiding under a desk. Ugh, is it safe to come out now? I don't know. <laughs> liberals, 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 liberals. What am I going to do with you liberals? You're scared of your shadow. Anyway, should Chicago stay a sanctuary city? Put it to the voters, I say. Yes. Let's see what the, the, the voters of Chicago have. You know, traditionally, the city of Chicago uh, is centrist who bury referendums that are proposed by lefties. So here we have a sort of MAGA sympathizer uh, putting forth a, uh, a referendum that I'm sure the lefties are going to want to bury. Democracy in the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen, always very entertaining. I say put it before the voters, but ultimately... I got a feeling it will not come before the voters. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest, Miles Conflassen, to join us in conversation, editor-writer for In These Times. Miles, before we get to some of the pressing national issues of the day, your thoughts about whether Chicagoans should vote on a referendum should Chicago uh, remain a sanctuary city? I think the voters of Chicago have already spoken very loudly and clearly on this question. Just look at the makeup of our city council. Look at uh, the the mayor who's in charge on the fifth floor. We just had an election that uh, where overwhelmingly 
progressive voices that have been speaking uh, forcefully in favor of immigrant rights uh, won resoundingly. And uh, this is this has long been part of the cultural fabric of our city has been uh, welcoming those who come in from all parts of the world, not just, you know, from uh, across the southern border, but from, you know, all walks of life. Chicago is a true melting pot. And that is reflected finally in our city's policies through having a strong welcoming city ordinance um, that also complies with Illinois law around um, not working with uh, ICE. I mean, this kind of push to further criminalize uh, immigrants in the city is really ugly when you look at, you know, the c conditions under which um, those who fall into ICE custody have to live. It's a really, you know, horrible set of circumstances. And we, you know, as a city, I think have chosen that we want to embrace those who are coming into the city. And, you know, you've been frequently talk about how we should see the influx of migrants as an opportunity rather than a crisis. And I think the same holds true across the board when we look at people coming into the city. I mean, we've been seeing the population numbers decrease. We've been seeing as a result of that, you know, the gutting of public services, like public education. Um, this is really a time, I think, for us to reflect on how we can build up the resources that are necessary pr to provide the public accommodations for the type of people coming into the city and those that already live here and focus more, less on keeping people out and treating certain people in a less than way and, and rather trying to you know create more equitable conditions across the board. Um, stunts like this, trying to get, you know, and because who knows how these referendum are going to be worded, right? I mean, this is the oldest trick in the book is trying to, you know, put forward these reactionary policies and do it in such a way to uh, to mess with voters' minds. And, we, you know, if that referendum got on the ballot, we'd be flooded with money from right-wing anti-immigrant groups trying to convince voters to um, vote in that direction. And, you know, that's similar to what we saw with the uh, progressive income tax, you know, with the fair tax, which was very simple in Chicago, overwhelmingly voted for it. But if you look across the state that got bombarded with right wing uh, media, uh, it had a direct impact on on how voters uh, ruled on that. It's And that's because um, the right wing money machine will jump into action any opportunity that they see. So I think we've already seen how Chicago uh, voters feel about this uh, question of being a sanctuary city. We don't need to um, relitigate it uh, through a referendum. All right. So I'm going to be a little more specific in my follow up question, which will lead into the discussion uh, about uh, the uh, UAW strike and uh, where the Democratic Party is going on that front. Uh, and and so I will ask you this point blank. Why are mainstream Democrats so cowardly when it comes to issues that could resonate with their voters? You have been coming on my show forever talking about lefty issues, uh, economic justice issues, uh, labor issues, organizing issues, basically paycheck issues that directly affect people's lives. And when I look at the centrist Democrats, they just hide. They're so afraid. It's like it's like they they watch the Fox TV news and then try to form a an opinion that will not offend the people who are offended by what they're hearing on Fox. I'm like, they're never going to vote for you. I don't know why you're so concerned about the Fox crowd, but I, I see it in the immigration issue. 
uh, Miles. I've been saying for months, Chicago's population is just what you just are uh, said. Chicago's population has has dropped, declined. You got the Tribune and Cranes and all of you know, the Chamber of Commerce saying, "Oh my God, this is an outrage. We got to reverse this." So here come busloads of people to reverse it. And what do they say? "Oh my God, it's a crisis. We don't have enough room for them. Send them back." You're so mean, Governor Abbott. Help. I'm like, why are they so cowardly when it comes to just embracing an issue that might scare or it might be used against them by Fox? Go ahead. Well, it's learned helplessness. And the, the way it was learned was specifically was by these, uh, you know, messaging gurus like your Rahm Emanuel's and, you know, uh, Robert Gibbs in the past and um, uh, all these kind of um I'm forgetting the name of some of these people. Mark, what's his name? One of the pollster dudes. Um, they've been telling Democrats for Penn. years. Yeah, Mark Penn. There you go. Um, uh, for years, this very message that you need to run to the right on these cultural issues and on these economic issues. Basically, just you know, be Republican light is the is the message that um, has been drilled into Democrats' heads for the Democratic you know candidates, elected officials' heads for. Uh, decades now. And as a result of that, that just seemingly becomes the common sense, even when it flies in the face of what, you know, we see, um, you know, when people are asked about these questions, when people are polled about that, when you see even, you know, especially in a city like Chicago, progressive voters, progressive policies, um, those who are running on very clear, you know, pro-working class agendas succeed, still you have this push to um, supposedly moderate, but really just mimic um, the Republican positions on these issues. And as we see the Republican Party lurch farther and farther to the right, uh, because even the Fox News crowd, you know, is being pushed by OAN and Newsmax and this whole other right wing media ecosystem that is pushing far more draconian and authoritarian views on all these issues, whether it's you know uh, crushing workers' right to you know collectively organize and bargain, or whether it's uh, immigration and um, racial justice, policing, public safety, what have you, the you know all of that's being pushed further to the right. You know if, you, the, for, if you're if you're telling Democrats that you need to you know appeal to these type of voters that are drawn in by those messages, that's just um, a recipe for. Uh, a reactionary politics that is not actually reflective of the progressive views that the majority of people hold, especially in a city like Chicago. So I think that's largely um, the reason for for that um, type of uh, timidity. But I do think it's toxic and I think it's actually a, a losing proposition because you have to form clear um, you have to polarize, right? You have to like sh- show that there are clear differences between uh, the what's being on offer for voters if you want to win elections and if you want to appeal to people. And I think that there are ways to do that because you can hold two thoughts. You can both support um, dignified lives for uh, migrants and refugees and immigrants that are uh, entering this country and want to see um, working people be able to access the um, necessary resources to for themselves to live a dignified life. Those things can go hand in hand, and we're seeing that more and more, I think, expressed through um, the success of progressive campaigns. Um, but you're right that when it comes to the 
you know, the center of the Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment, you're seeing the same regurgitated uh, type of uh, calls for, you know, reaching independence through becoming scared of embracing uh, the type of agenda that I think voters have clearly shown that they're willing to vote for if it is, um, you know, presented in a way that brings people in rather than uh, ISIS people out. All right. And uh, we'll now move over to uh, the national issues, but I'll just repeat what I say every day on this show. Hey, Chicago leaders, you want to undercut MAGA on this issue? Welcome uh, the Venezuelans uh, on those buses to Chicago and put black Chicago to work building houses, put black Chicago to work uh, by funding uh, just programs that help resettle people. How about helping the homeless who are already existing live in Chicago and use the TIF dollars? You could use your local TIF dollars instead of spending that money on Lincoln Yards. You can spend it in Englewood. You could spend it in Woodlawn. You could spend it in Roseland, where Anthony Beal is. You don't have to just spend it in the same north side and near west side and near south side neighborhoods. Hello, Chicago. Wake up. Sorry, Miles. I just always feel compelled to say that because... This city has allowed the black community of Chicago and the Hispanic community of Chicago to be like rivals. I've been watching this since the daily years. The people in Chicago have been played. They've been gaslit. They've been brainwashed. That's what Anthony Beal from the Ninth Ward, he's just playing that old daily game. One community against another community. Uh, And it has worked very well. I got to concede. I make the concession for Daly and Rahm. You know, Karen Lewis came to the hideout. You were there, uh, Miles, when she said, why did uh, Rahm win re-election by beating Chewy? Because she talked about the rivalries between black Chicago and Spanish Chicago. Karen was unafraid to speak the truth. Uh, One of many reasons I miss her right now. Uh, Any thoughts before I move on to uh, UAW? You're you're right, because Rahm Emanuel was able to. I mean, he also had Obama in his corner, you know, doing robocalls. So I think that that didn't hurt him winning black voters on the south and west side of the city. Um, But you also I mean, it's important to speak to the real economic um, pain that is being felt in large swaths of the city that do feel left behind, you know, and disadvantaged. And that is a, that is itself a crisis. That could also be an opportunity, you're right, for um, the city to make investments. And that is certainly something that uh, Mayor Johnson has talked about, you know, as, as, as a priority is um, job creation, um, you know, economic investment. I think some of these efforts, like, you know, uh, looking into a municipally owned grocery store to um, bring into areas that don't have access to fresh produce um, are the type of outside the box ways of thinking that could yield long-term results. But right now, I mean, you look across, uh, yeah, large parts of the South side, you know, I grew up on the far South side every day, you know, going through the city and just seeing how, um, you know, you ride the red line and you can just see two different cities. That's um, a travesty and something that needs uh, repair. And there are opportunities for, you know, building new housing. I think there's no doubt that that's going to have to be part of any long-term solution to um, the amounts of new uh, residents that are coming into the city. A lot of that is longer term than can be done immediately, but that doesn't mean that you can't start, you know, getting, uh, getting things in motion. And you have to do that in order to uh, 
peel back some of that long-term resentment that has um, been built up over the years. And you're right, I think it was done cynically and used as a you know political tool in order to like cleave different voting blocks away from each other. And this is the classic you know uh, role of the ruling class in America is to try to you know create divides between those at the bottom rungs of society to fight over scraps versus um, drawing their attention at those who are actually in you know power centers and our city and our society, which are largely those in, sitting in you know high office buildings, running financial institutions, and approving you know toxic swap deals. Instead, to have people you know angry among themselves is a good way to get them to distract people from the actual causes of that economic pain. Um, that exist in the first place, but you can't dismiss it, right? And and and, and treat that as if it's not, if, as if those um, feelings of distress aren't coming from a reasonable place. And in, in, until you like acknowledge and start to make efforts on that, I don't think you're going to be able to bridge those divides that we're talking about. Yeah, we have a long way to go on that front. All right, let's move uh, to UAW, the strike, uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, and Donald Trump's contrasting uh, reactions to the strike, which sort of symbolize where the Democratic and Republican parties are. I want to give a shout out to a longtime listener, dear friend of the show, Michael Girardi, who has implored lefties that have come on this show, implored them time after time after time uh, to address the issues of like uh, wage inequities, the fact that working people are making less relative to the bosses, uh, the fact that a union movement could uh, sort of bridge the differences we're just talking about between different uh, ethnic groups and ra the races, et cetera, and so forth. He's urging and pleading. Uh, and I believe, at the risk of saying anything even remotely optimistic, because I'm so used to losing uh, as an old lefty, uh, I believe that we're seeing that effort uh, over the last few years. You've come on the show and talked about it many times, the many uh, the labor movement, the growth of unions in many industries, uh, the recent strikes. Uh, and man, this is right out there in the open uh, with the uh, auto worker strike, Miles, because they are just shining a light on the fact that the, the car companies, the executives have been making a fortune over the last 10 years since uh, Obama and the Democrats bailed out that industry and the workers have been left around uh, behind and now they're going no more. It's not enough that the rich guys are just getting more money. We want to uh, be cut into it as well. Take it away, Miles. Well, you're right about those record profits. I mean, it's $250 billion uh, in North America over the past 10 years for the big three. That's breaking every record. And, um, and meanwhile, what are they spending their money on? We've talked about this last time I came on the show is that, you know, nine uh, billion million dollars on uh, stock buybacks and dividends to enrich shareholders uh, last year. That's, you know, a massive injunction of uh, 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 injection of money into, you know, just wealthy shareholders, basically. Um, and meanwhile, the workers have been um, getting uh, screwed basically over the past 20 years. You know, their wages have decreased on average by about 30%. And if you look at it um, now, 
there's been a lot of focus on this call for, you know, 40% wage increase for workers as being outlandish. And especially if you turn on the business press, they'll kind of mock that uh, demand and say, uh, you know, you're not even going to be satisfied with 20%. Any worker, you know, would love a 20% raise. Well, think about what these auto workers are now making. I mean, what I just said, that the, the wages have decreased. They're making less now because of, you know, when uh, tied to inflation um, than they were 20 years ago. The average starting wage is about $17 an hour. That's like 30 some, you know, 32, $33,000 a year. That's hardly a livable income um, for a household, especially, you know, depending on the cost of living where they are. And then the top levels are still like $32 um, an hour. That's not you know, getting anybody rich. And so if you add, you know, 40%, 40% to those, what you may maybe somebody's making in the, in the forties instead of the thirties, you know, or getting around 70 instead of, um, instead of 50 or 60, those still are not, you know, the, the average income is like 70,000 in America that granted, you know, working class households rarely make that. That's because we have a lot of rich people uh, in the country too, or at least some of them make a whole lot of money. But getting up to a you know livable wage shouldn't be termed like ridiculous, especially when the CEO of GM made 20, 29 million last year, Ford 21 million, Stellantis 25 million dollars in a year. This is like over 300 times what the average workers are making. So I think shining a light on some of the discrepancy between CEO and exec executive pay, because I think we should focus on the executives too, not just those like at the top of the company, but also the shareholders, the ones that are benefiting from these stock buybacks and certainly benefiting from uh, car prices increasing by 35% while um, wages, you know, for workers are in like the single digits. Th that's what allows these um, rich people to get ever richer on the backs of the workers who are actually doing the labor that makes the vehicles that, um, you know, are of such value in our society. And so um, that's, I think, was the, the backdrop for this visit by Biden on Tuesday to the picket line in Michigan, uh, in Wayne, Michigan, where he stood alongside, uh, alongside Sean Fain, the newly elected uh, leader of the UAW, first democratically elected uh, president, and uh, someone who has been outspoken about this class war and said, bring it on, you know, and this is like Bernie Sanders kind of language, you know, there's a there's a class war going on, but the working class should win it. That's basically what he said in his speech alongside Biden. He said, we're fighting a war now, you know, and we're not fighting a war across the seas. We're fighting a war against corporate greed and the true liberators are the working class. That's like, you know, as uh, intense language as you can imagine coming from a labor leader, and especially when he's standing next to the president of the United States, who um, similarly was, you know, holding a megaphone and speaking out um, in support of workers and saying record profits mean there need mean there needs to be a record contract. So I don't think we should, um, you know, take lightly the historic nature of the fact that Biden did this move. And I'll just, you know, give myself a little shout out. I came on the show, you know, a couple weeks ago and implored 
uh, Joe Biden to wrap his arms around the auto workers and really embrace this fight and take it on, especially after Trump announced this truly cynical visit to a non-union shop that's improperly being um, called, you know, his visit with striking workers when none of the workers he's speaking to are striking. I mean, maybe some strikers come over and listen to Trump, but he's speaking to specifically non-union workers who exist to undercut the strike and take away the leverage of the striking UAW workers. So, I mean, I, I really, you know, was one voice of many that were calling for Biden to make this move. Of course, people like Rashida Tlaib and, you know, Democrats in Michigan were calling for this. The AFL-CIO and UAW were calling for it. Um, so I'm, I'm not taking all the credit, but I will say you know, I definitely uh, have been calling for this, and and now he did it. So uh, gotta gotta give him credit as well for for where it's uh, where it's due. Now take the credit. First of all, um, people don't know this, but <clears throat> President Joe Biden's favorite podcast is the Ben Jarofsky Show, uh, and his favorite episode is when Miles comes on, and he particularly loves it when we talk sports. We'll get to some Bears talk at the very end, uh, but uh, it, no, you and you said it in the face of my typical. <laughs> Don't believe I've lost for so many years. So whenever young lefties come on the show, they always taunt me. Ben, you know, you don't always lose. I I didn't believe it. I mean, I've never seen. I said this when you were on. We last had the conversation, Miles. I'm like, I've never seen a president join a picket line. I I remember Obama. <laughs> Man, I remember talking about liberals and centrists. The, the, the Democratic coalition was literally under siege in the state of Wisconsin, entire threat of falling apart. You know, I mean, the Republicans had taken control of the state and were going to change the laws to destroy uh, the unions or undercut uh, unions, particularly of, of governmental employees. This is like an existential crisis for the Democratic Party. And what did President Obama and his uh, cabinet members and his allies do? They ignored it. They go, oh, 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 you know, on one hand this, on the other hand that. And they stayed out of it. Wisconsin win Republican is still, still trying to uh, reverse that trend. Oh, wow. What do you think, Dems? If they if Republicans successfully destroy the labor movement in this country, which supports Democratic candidates, what do you think that's going to do to your party? Huh? It's going to really set it back. We saw it happen in Wisconsin, Miles. We saw it happen in Michigan. We've seen it happen uh, in Pennsylvania. All these states under siege by the Republican Party, Ohio, trying to destroy the labor movement. Uh, and so finally, Joe Biden shows up at a picket line, almost passed out. So, but you know what? I got to stop being jaded and I have to give him credit. He showed up there uh, with the bullhorn. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump is about to, is playing his own uh, games. But I will I'll throw this at you, uh, Miles. I sent you this article. I don't know if you had time to read it. I, I couldn't believe I was reading this article in the Washington Post. So generally, the mainstream press, when it comes to labor issues, this is the New York Times loves doing this. They'll emphasize how uh, even though there's a strike, m many of the workers are really uh, MAGA people. So th the emphasis will be the message that is being sent that the mainstream uh, sends out is you'll never win. You'll always lose. Uh you may uh, be championing 
themes that should appeal to people, but they're motivated by other issues, not pocketbook issues. And so those always slice their throats uh, on this matter because they're probably not that bright to begin with. That's the message that's constantly coming from uh, the mainstream press. I almost passed out. The story I sent to you said that red and blue families in Michigan and Ohio are with UAW on this strike. So I'm not quite sure what to, to make of that, uh, Miles. Do you think that uh, that actually this message has uh, emerged and that people are looking past culture issues or age-old grievances uh, on the when it comes to this particular strike? Well, I think these are opportunities to bridge those divides, to bring people together on issues that um, can unite rather than divide. I also just want to say quickly, I hope that you're under some supervision when you're reading the news, because it seems <laughs> like there's a lot of possibilities of passing out going on over there. So I want to get a lookout for one's health here. Um, maybe you just need to, you know, go back and forth on which uh, news outlets you're, you're, you're reading. Also, I do want to shout out uh, the Washington Post. I mean, I, I'll just say, I don't want to give the media too much credit because as I just said, there was so much misreporting about this Donald Trump visit saying that he was speaking to auto striking auto workers and he was visiting the UAW and this was all part of, you know, implying that this was somehow planned <laughs> alongside the union when it's the exact opposite of that. And any basic reporter, if I can find that out as, you know, a journalist in these times, the New York Times, Politico, all these places that have been misreporting that. Um, obviously could as well if they just would, would have done a little bit of digging. But at the Washington Post, you know, they have a really incredible labor reporter there, Lauren Gurley, who actually previously was uh, worked at in these times. Um, but she has been doing incredible uh, reporting on the UAW strike and on labor issues in general. And I think it's important that there are journalists like that that have, you know, covered workers issues from the perspective of workers and not just management and bosses, which is what you get, you know, when you get like labor reporters that really are business reporters, but then have been handed a labor story, you know, and they've come out of kind of business journalism school versus those that cut their teeth doing actual um, on the ground, like rank and file focused uh, labor reporting. That's, the, that's kind of the difference. But with this poll in particular, you're speaking to, I find it incredible, not just that this is crossing over between partisan lines, because that might be expected. I mean, there's plenty of union workers that are um, Republican and or that vote Republican, at least, and that go back and forth. I mean, that's what allowed for Donald Trump to win in 2016, right, was all these uh, union voters. I mean, it was one of the things, but an important element was that Trump peeled off a number of union voters in the upper Midwest, uh, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, that Barack Obama had won in 2012, that, you know, that switched over because they were drawn in by Trump's appeals. I'm sure there was plenty of grievance politics at play. There was, you know, the historically um, kind of, uh, I would say, uh, negligent campaign of Hillary Clinton when it came to wooing union uh, voters. Um, I mean, she hardly visited the upper Midwest, whereas Trump was, uh, you know, set up campaign offices there and what have you. Um, and so I think that there are always going to be, you know, some uh, political divergence when it comes to voting preferences within the union community. But by, by and large, labor uh, unionists do support Democrats and are the tool that Democrats use to, you know, do door knocking campaigns, to do organizing and certainly to fund a lot of these um, 
a lot of these efforts. But when it comes specifically to the public approval, those numbers are going up over the course of this strike. And that is pretty uh, surprising in the, in the sense that oftentimes strikes can cause hardship and that hardship translates into you know, support peeling away because people start to get nervous and feel like, I don't know if this is really going to turn out well. Maybe we just need to like find a deal. Um, and the public certainly, especially because there were so many fears raised around like this is going to damage the economy. It's going to wreck working people's lives. It's going to cause car prices to spike, all this stuff. That hasn't really materialized. Um, and even where it has, we've seen those numbers increase. You know, a, a week or so ago, I think it was like 55% of 50 some percent of voters said that they were supporting the UAW strikers, and now that number's up in the 60s. So we've definitely seen movement toward the union side. And I think that's part of the reason that Biden did this visit is because he found it politically advantageous to be seen standing alongside union workers. That is a watershed change from where um, historically the political gravity has been. And you're right to mention Obama. You know, they the, the uh, uh, unions in Wisconsin asked specifically for Joe Biden when he was then vice president back in 2010 to go to Wisconsin, to go to Madison to speak to workers, and they got rebuffed. You know, the, the White House said no. Obama said he was going to put on comfortable shoes and go walk the picket line with the uh, Congress hotel strikers. He just never did after he became president. This is the time of, like, you know, Democrats were feuding with teachers unions. There was a, such a focus on like higher education as the pathway towards economic success. Biden is taking a very different route. You know, you remember back in his like State of the Union, he talked about all these manufacturing jobs he's created and how the majority of them you don't need a college degree to access. Right. And he's, you know, focusing specifically on blue collar uh, workers and saying that that is what builds the middle class. And that's how we need to rebuild the middle class in this country is through a resurgent labor movement. So I think we have seen a real change and it's due to decades of organizing by by workers and a revitalized strength and vibrancy uh, that's reflected in all these new campaigns going on. You know, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, Chipotle's are, you know, organizing, you're seeing like the, the, the labor movement really spread. That's not to say that we're seeing a massive rise in membership. That is clearly still um, a very weak spot. And the fact that it's like one in 10 workers um, in the country are unionized right now. But that shows the massive opportunity, because if we have like what, like 63 percent, 67 percent, some say like support unions and those numbers are dramatically higher among young people, then we should be unionizing these people, right? These are these are great possibilities. The problem is the labor law is decidedly against workers, and that's where having a pro-union NLRB and um, labor department can really be successful in changing some of these things. But it's going to be a longer-term uh, campaign. But I do think that this. Um, dichotomy between Biden and Trump really shows this division. Like the, the Republicans have long been trying to um, pose as a working people focused party. But meanwhile, we know when we look at any of their policies, they're deeply anti-union. When Trump was in office, what did he do? He like, you know, made it so that whole sectors of workforces could not unionize. He made it easier for employers to bust unions. He cut out OSHA regulations. He gave out government contracts to uh, known um, labor violate labor rights violators. He's you know as anti-union to the bone because uh, he's a real estate tycoon. He's sees the you know uh, organized workers as an impediment 
towards his vision of kind of an unfettered, unregulated, uh, cap hyper capitalist uh, dreamland for him and his billionaire buddies. And so, uh, and and you do you have seen the Republicans start to move a little bit on this, right? Because like Josh Howley went down and stood with the uh, uh, picketing workers. And um, I think J.D. Vance did the same thing, or at least spoke in support of them. Um, the difference there is they're focused on calling out the EV industry, the electric vehicle industry. And they're trying to say, oh, Biden is actually trying to kill the auto industry by pushing for green technology, when in fact, the UAW is not you know, made a big stink about the transition to EVs. In fact, what they want is for those jobs to also be yes. unionized. And that is a very different approach than just saying, oh, green technology is going to kill these jobs. Because look around, look at the economy. They, that change is already happening. That shift is happening if you look at Europe and you look in, even to, to Asia. Like these things are already happening. And so if the US doesn't keep up with that, it's going to be left behind. There's no way to slow that transition down. The, that's why the UAW is calling for a just transition to train up workers to provide good, dignified union paying jobs. Instead, what the Republicans want to do is send those jobs to factories in the South that are largely anti-union, that suppress wages, that undercut workers. And that, to me, is just it completely exposes the fraud that is this claim that the Republicans are in any way a pro-worker. Oh, that was a great riff, uh, Miles. And uh, there's really nothing you can do to trump that riff because you're absolutely correct. <laughs> They're shifting the focus to electric. That's the problem, electric vehicles. <laughs> yeah, and then standing with workers uh, while they're undercutting workers. Uh, yeah, you're raising the, the, the you're, you're, now you're feeding that part of me, you know, that you've always tried to combat, uh, you and Micah, when you come on the show, the part that just believes uh, people in this country are so dumb that they fall for this stuff. But I'm going to avoid going down that path, and I'm going to have a higher opinion of people. All right, let's move to the government shutdown. Um, <laughs> we're right on the uh, on the eve of it. I don't know if uh, we it can be avoided. Uh, it would be what uh, Sunday at midnight, I guess, uh, is when the government would shut down uh, unless a deal is made uh, in Congress. Uh, and Kevin McCarthy's just the, the leader, the Speaker of the House. It's a joke to call him the leader of the House because he's not leading anything. Uh, is um, really kind of pathetic, uh, Miles, in his attempt to uh, work any kind of coalition uh, between Republicans and Democrats uh, to fund government, to keep government funded. And the latest proposal is just outrageous. Just like the the the, the wacky MAGA crew uh, within the MAGA crew. So there's like a wacky MAGA as opposed to just a regular MAGA, which is already pretty wacky. Um, uh, they uh, are proposing uh, some severe cuts to that would hurt the poorest, most uh, vulnerable people in this country as a way of showing they're going to uh, be serious about the massive, the massive um, deficit, which is uh, your thoughts about the pending government shutdown. Yeah, it certainly seems like there's uh, it, it's set in stone unless there's some miraculous change. And that's because the um, far right wing of the Republican Party has decided that it's better for them to be seen as fighters rather than, you know, people that get anything done. Because it, on a national level, and this is what Mitch McConnell says, too, right? This is why that nationally Republicans are freaked out about the prospect of this because they know they'll get blamed. Trump doesn't think that they'll get blamed. He's saying that they'll blame Biden. You know, the voters will take this out on 
the president because he's the president. But we've seen this before when the intransigence of a subset of extreme um, House members causes this type of completely avoidable crisis. Um, the people that will pay the price for it are working people, you know, cafeteria workers. The government is, you know, the number one employer in the United States. And so understandably, um, you're, we're going to see uh, people take pay cuts, you know, paychecks aren't going to be going through. That's going to affect, you know, TSA agents and um, flight, you know, flight workers, um, that, which can have caused massive havoc at the, the the nation's airways. We've seen that many times before. Um, federal courts as well will be affected, which is, might be one reason that the former president is pushing so hard on his allies in the House to cause this government shutdown, because that would most likely delay federal trials, including that of Donald Trump, um, which could benefit him politically, but obviously would, you know, that's that also will delay all kinds of trials for um, convicted or at least indicted uh, criminals that would otherwise be facing the legal system, but they wouldn't while um, a, a shutdown is going on. Um, but you're right to also point out that what they're calling for is just um, shredding the already very meager safety net we have. I mean, they want to cut the housing subsidies for the poor by 33%. And this is why we're in the midst of a housing crisis where we're seeing um, evictions skyrocket and rent become unaffordable. Um, when it comes to nutritional assistance, they want to force over a hundred, uh, over a million um, women and children uh, onto that wait list. Um, when it comes to like heating assistance, they're trying to reduce the federal spending on it by like 70%. I think these are going to be have huge impacts if any of that would go through, but they're not going to go through because those um, would be dead on arrival in the Senate. And the Senate already has passed a clean continuing resolution, a CR bill, that they could just get through the House if McCarthy would bring it to the floor. Because if McCarthy brought that to the floor, there would be enough Democrats and Republicans together to pass it. But McCarthy knows his political future hangs in the balance because the you know the far right wing of the Republican Party has basically said that they're going to depose him if he allows the Democrats to vote with the Republicans on anything. And so it becomes this complete game of chicken where McCarthy clearly does not have control over his caucus. Um, he's like calling Biden asking, oh, can I meet with the president? And it's like, and, and the White House is saying, no, you have to sort this out because we just did this in May when, you know, there was going to be uh, the debt limit. Uh, was going was, was gonna to be breached. And they carved out a deal, which included, I think, a, a you know horrible policy that Biden agreed to, to resume student loan payments, um, which is also coming up soon. But part of that deal was that they would fund the government, you know, and, and along with um, increasing the debt ceiling. Well, now it's the Republicans' time to come, you know, follow through on their part of the deal. And instead, they're in complete chaos. And even a, something like a discharge petition, which would could be done even without the speaker, would need the tacit support of the speaker, but it would be just a majority of House members deciding to vote for something. Um, that would still take time to implement, probably like a week or two weeks. And you, as you just said, October 1st is the deadline for funding the government. So it doesn't seem like there's a real way out of this. But there's also nothing that seemingly that Republicans are trying to get out of this. You know, the last time there was a government shutdown, it was over Trump demanding money for the border wall, right? And that, and the government did shut down and he didn't get the money for the border wall. And then 
they just funded the government eventually because they were like, we can't keep doing this. And because uh, airline workers basically said, we're not going to keep going to work. And therefore, you know, even rich people won't be able to fly around the world anymore. And once it started to impact people, you know, with bigger wallets, that's when they decided, OK, we're going to make a deal and, 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 and stop this and fund the government. So um, I don't know what exactly the resolution is going to be, but um, I definitely think that it's not going to be beneficial to the Republicans. And this is just showing the cleavages in, the, in, in that party. They don't have anybody else that can muster the strength that you only have like Matt Gates, who is, you know, out on his own on a limb and he's oh the one making these horrendous cuts to social spending. And so yeah. he seems like, you know, maybe even a worse option. And meanwhile, the Democrats are the ones actually doing the work that, you know, that they, they're composing these, these CR bills that would allow the government to stay open. Um, so the Republicans are definitely going to own this one. I think it's just a question of how long it's going to last at this point. Yeah, I, um, by the way, just want a little shout out to uh, New York Democrats, heck of a job on that 2022 election uh, that gave the House uh, to the Republicans. Great job, Cuomo followers in the state of New York. Uh, speaking, uh, sort of tying the beginning and the end of the show together with centrist being uh, completely worthless uh, <laughs> when it comes to anything that, to a large degree, the Democrats do not have control of the House because of what went down in New York and some sections of California and uh just the mismanagement of the Democratic Party, the continued mismanagement of the Democratic Party, but the centrists in that party. All right, um, let's close with something a little less gloom and doom that accentuates gloom and doom. And, of course, my beloved Chicago Bears. Uh, I'm not as much a Bears fan as I am a Bulls fan, but it's they're my second favorite team in the city of Chicago, believe it or not. Miles, I've been a Bears fan forever. Uh, my, my real heart is with the Bulls, but uh, another team that struggles. This is... Miles been following football since 1960s. Arguably the worst bear season. That is saying a lot. I went through 69 season before you were born. I, th I think they were one in 13 that year. Uh, so this is, I believe, the worst Bears team, the biggest just collapse of the Bears. Everything they have done has been horrific. So they cleaned house three years ago. Follow me, this non-sports uh, uh, fans out there. You, sh you should be conversant in this stuff, Chicagoans. They cleaned house three years ago. They said, this is a, we're at a new path. And we, they brought in new management. They've hired the worst coaches in the world, Miles. These guys are so clueless. They're like, they got this look on their face like, I don't know what to it'd be. I almost think I, it'd be like me running the Bears. They're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and they... Completely destroyed Justin Fields, the young quarterback. And he's like, the poor guy, I, please trade him, okay, just so he could resurrect his career and get on path because this is just – this is just uh, – uh, this will just end, end in him being uh, just a mediocre quarterback uh, wandering around the league. So, Miles, this is what I'm urging. I'm urging that Chicago uh, Bears fans just embrace their awfulness and openly root for for them if you're going to be bad be really bad oh and 17 bad that's my recommendation to chicago Bears fans embrace the awfulness of the chicago bears and it may have the collateral benefit of deterring uh mayor johnson from giving them a handout to stay at soldier field or to stay somewhere in the downtown area uh your thoughts about embracing the bears awfulness it's hard to root against your team and that's, I say that, you know, from a psychological level as well as from, you know, just the city, you know, patriotism or 
you know, our municipal pride uh, position. It's it's difficult because you know you not only do you want them to succeed, you usually want the other team to lose. But yet, when you're getting trounced by the Kansas City Chiefs and you see Taylor Swift, you know, uh, swearing up a storm in the box and Travis Kelsey, you know, driving her away in a in a Corvette or you know a convertible. It's it's hard to feel anything but just complete shame, especially because look, we've got um, this is supposed to be. You're right. This is what the Bears. This is what the Bears fans have called for for so many years was to clean house, and now they finally did. They drafted a quarterback prospect. We finally kind of filled that position, and yet they're in more disarray than ever. Really, I mean, I can't imagine you had one coach. You know, Eberflus clearly can't coach. He's probably one of the worst coach, maybe the worst coach in the league. And then Alan Williams, who is the defensive coordinator, obviously just got his home rated. I mean, by the FBI, who knows about that? But like, still, that's not, it doesn't look great in terms of like who were, who these coaches are that have been elevated by the new management. And then the play on the field has just been atrocious. That's, you know, it's, it's hard to watch and it makes you want to just tank and try to get, you know, Caleb Williams next year or something. And, you know, yes, yeah, send Justin Fields off somewhere else. And uh, and hope for the best. The saddest part about it to me was, you know, we lived under Matt Nagy, who I thought was yeah. you know, a disgrace of a coach himself. But now he's working on the team with the Chiefs, and you saw him smiling on the sideline oh. during that game, getting you know contribution <laughs> at his former team. He's you know he's living the high life these days, and we're still stuck in you know this complete uh, football purgatory where <laughs> we're not bad enough to get good in the future but we're not i mean even losing what is it like 25 games in a row no well we've lost like 12 games in a row 13 13 now but like each with over 25 points from the other team i mean what kind of defensive coach allows for every game to be beaten by uh, you know the other team scoring 25 points that's just a disgrace so yeah it's hard to see hope on the horizon and i do think when we're not you know between the hours of the bears games when they're actually playing i think we should all be rooting against them and for them to you know tank and get the because i it does not look like there's any hope this season but when the game is going on i do i do find it hard to actively root against uh, the team that is wearing, you know, blue and orange. That just seems like it goes against something deep inside of me. So I don't know. I don't know exactly know how to balance those two <laughs> two feelings, um, but it just makes me excited for the Bulls season to start. You know, and I, I have to admit when that, when that, when you said that, I, 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 so the, okay, the bears have a game coming up this week and follow me this latest non-sports fans. You could be conversant on this stuff. You could go into a bar and talk. You just listen to my show. I'll help you. Okay. So the Bears are playing the Denver Broncos on Sunday. The Denver Broncos are a terrible team. They gave up 70 points. So non-sports fans out there, that's a lot of points. Okay, you go to a bar, you go, they gave up 70 points. That's a lot of points. The Bears are playing them on Sunday. It's the two worst teams in football. If the Bears lose to the Denver Broncos, they will be unquestionably the worst team in the league. And you can celebrate their utter, utter badness. On the other hand, Miles, I know what you're saying. Like if it's a close game and the Bears have a chance to win, and I'm saying, yeah, embrace the badness, I will be like you. This is the side of my helplessness. This is a plea. I need help. I will be rooting for the Bears. I will be just like you. Come on, Fields. Get that first down. Oh, my God. Am I, am I pathetic? Uh, and I will be rooting for the Bears to win, even though 
I, I keep talking about embrace the Owen 17. So miles, what can I say? Uh, I just, I feel we're literally in a no win situation. And I'm just going to push back on one last thing. I don't believe the bears are in purgatory. I think purgatory is like sort of where the bulls are. The bears are beat below purgatory. Every, if they, have Owen 17 to draft Caleb Williams guarantee the bears culture will destroy Caleb Williams. If I'm Caleb Williams, I'm pleading, please don't draft. If I am Caleb Williams, I'm saying, don't draft me bears. I won't come to you. Okay. I'm not going to come to that system. So worse than purgatory, uh, miles. I hate to say it. Well, it's, uh, we're, I think we're about one month from the start of the, the Chicago bulls, 2023, 2024 season. So there's always, you know, Hope, hope springs eternal when it comes to the um, the great Chicago Bulls. All right, uh, before we go, any uh, in these times articles you want to promote? Of course. Well, we, if you want to read a little bit on the history of presidents and picket lines, um, as I mentioned, Joe Biden was the first, but presidents throughout our history have a long history of you know engaging with the labor movement, usually in a very negative way. One thing I should have mentioned is you know people say, oh, Joe Biden's taking a side. And this is unprecedented. He shouldn't be doing that in a labor dispute. Well, presidents almost always take a side. It's just on the side of the bosses. And we've seen that time and time again. What ha- You know, you always see these auto executives and corporate executives being, you know, uh, paraded through the White House. That, to me, is taking a side. I think the fact that a president is standing on the picket line is a, a hopeful thing, but it shows that it's a pretty low bar to be, you know, the most pro-union president in in history. So uh, Jeff Shirky, who's a great um, labor writer, historian, reporter, kind of took a dive into some of the history of presidents and um, picket lines. And that story is on uh, the site right now. Um, Encourage people to to read that. And I'll give another uh, quick plug because we still have a couple days before the In These Times annual event, which is happening September 30th at the Haymarket House. Um, and you can get tickets to that either at the door um, or uh, on the website if you go to In These Times. Lily Wachowski, the filmmaker, is going to be there along with Stacey Davis Gates, um, president of the CTU. And that'll be, I'll be there. Come hang out with me. Um, and that'll be a fun time. So, and you can support independent um, political journalism um, that covers uh, the labor movement, left wing politics, all good stuff. So, um, I encourage folks to come and uh, check that out. All right, very good. Thank you very much, Miles. Uh, outstanding job as always. Also, want to thank producer Chris doing a great job. And uh, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. And remember, you can always catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and a whole lot more at ChicagoReader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show, and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.